came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. I'm Xenia Chmutina. And I'm Darian Alexander-Williams. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Today's episode is part of season four. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, Jason. Hey, Sonia. We're back again to Disasters Deconstructed. Um, yay! How yay. was your Easter break? Tell me, what did you do? Um, well, my my mother's been visiting from Ireland, so we've been um, catching up with her. It's It's been kind of difficult not to see all the family, you know, so it's nice to see somebody mm. when when most travel is kind of very limited, you know. Have you read lots of fiction? <laughs> well, why are you laughing so much? I mean, it's a it's a pretty normal question to it's ask. It's a serious question. It's a serious, it is a question. serious question. Actually, you're right. Uh, uh, I have not. Sorry, but I I have been reading lots of cool stuff. Yeah. But admittedly, I mean, you know what I'm like, right? You know what I'm like. Do you have <sighs> some something in mind that you want me to read? Uh, I don't know. I've got so many books in mind that I wanted to read. But I think, you know what, actually, I think we've agreed on that, is that you read books, I read books, and then we give each other's reviews, and it works so well. That seems to work, actually. It's great. We, we can cover twice as many books. Yeah. Exactly. I love that. So this is how we continue and save a lot of time and read thousands of books in our lifetime. Um. Yeah. Seems to work. Um, so you're referring to the the book that I read recently that I gave you a review on, right? Yeah, that was a great review. I'm not sure about the book, but the review uh, I enjoyed thoroughly. But no, the reason I kind of, I, I thought um, I've asked you about the books uh, is because I, th- I think we spoke about this before. I've been revisiting the um, Saeed's Orientalism Yes. Uh, recently, right? And we kind of chatted about this mm-hmm. because I, I, I've I, never read it in English. I read it selectively in Russian, which kind of just really random. Mm. Um, but it, I guess what was shocking, but not really like surprising perhaps, you know, in that I haven't really thought about it for like such a long time. I haven't really thought about this book for such a long time. But what I realized rereading it again now, and, you know, so as a bit of a context, as you know, I did international relations, kind of politics and Chinese studies, right, as part of my degree. So I was reading it very much from that point of view yeah. when, when I was reading it the first time. But what I what I realized revisiting it now is that whilst the book was kind of written so long ago, um, yet the West seems to still be engaging in kind of producing its orient, so to say, right, through essentially stereotyping and appropriation. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's this sort of attitude and power relation and um, like position of um, like re- reclaiming and recreating superiority is 
like very much a part of our field as well and it's really problematic exactly and i think there is more reflection on this now but i wonder whether there would be a point in life where we would actually kind of embrace and understand how much appropriation is actually happening right mm. and we'll we'll stop doing this um and i don't know perhaps today in in our episode yeah uh, we well we are reflecting on this together with jake Working for and with communities in a meaningful and equitable way is something we've discussed with Zaneda Delica-Willison and Mihir Bhatt in season three. And we also reflected on this quite a lot with JC Gaillard when we were talking about the Disaster Studies Manifesto. It remains one of the most important yet somehow not often discussed topics in disaster studies. And today we want to continue this conversation with our friend Jay Kadag. Um, hey, Jay. Hi, Gisenia. Hi, Jason. Hey, Jake. I'm very honored to be invited in this podcast. Yay, it's so nice to, to have you again. So you, <laughs> the audience may remember Jake from our first episode that um, talked about the manifesto. Uh, and we released that episode a long time ago. It was season one, episode 18. Um, and then I joined Jake, uh, Loy Claudeau, and JC for the conversation. And we were in Auckland, actually, all together in person. Hmm. Um, so welcome back, Jake. Um, Jake is a senior lecturer at the Department of Geography of the University of the Philippines, Diliman. His work is wide-ranging, and he's focusing um, his research on disaster risk reduction, including climate change, participatory mapping, um, community work in disaster risk reduction. And in fact, most of Jake's work is with the communities and for the communities. So Jake, quite a lot of your work is conducted in the Philippines. And as Ksenia said, you're working with various communities as well as individuals within communities. So maybe you could start by um, giving us a bit of insight into how you started working with communities and why for you that is so important. Oh, thank you, uh, Jason and Ksenia. Well, my work is on community-based uh, disaster risk reduction or disaster research. I guess they all started with uh, JC Gaya. <laughs> so I met <laughs> JC in the 2007 in the University of the Philippines, where he taught for quite some time. And as you know, he's uh, one of my advisors for my postgraduate studies. Mm -hmm. And I joined his fieldworks, where I was exposed to disaster research and uh, community-based disaster risk reduction. I still remember it was in 2007 when I joined Chase in the fieldwork uh, in Pampanga, it's a province in the Philippines, where you have the Mount Pinatubo, the volcano, the volcano that erupted in the night one. Hmm. Uh, and there I listened to uh, uh, conversations with local people about their experiences of uh, flooding in daily life, uh, the many stories of survival after uh, Pinatubo eruption. And I kind of remember my experience in 1995 uh, after a strong typhoon in my province. I was a young boy back then and, uh, you know, we lost our house to a landslide. So hmm. <laughs> with that personal experience and the value that I see in doing disaster research and uh, community-based DRR, and adventures in the communities. I must admit that's one of the real motivations, the adventures. <laughs> so it's a love at first sight. Uh, I was so sure at the time that uh, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and that's what I'm doing until now. So since then, 12 or 13 years from now, I continued my works on community-based DRR, participatory research, 
Um, and of course, we must not forget in, in all those community works, I learned a lot from my friends and colleagues in the NGOs. Hmm. Uh, they are the real deal when it comes to community-based DRR. And I think compared to me, they are more entitled to talk about working with communities. <laughs> but uh, anyway, on the question, why is uh, community work important in disaster risk reduction? Or why do I think it's important? Well, there are many answers to that question. And, uh, but I think it's best summarized in uh, you know, Ben, ben Wisner, Ilan Kelman, J.C. Gayard book, uh, 2012 Rutledge Handbook of DRR. Uh, they, have their, they have that statement there. There's no single person or institution that possesses all the knowledge and skills to implement effective DRR. It's actually page one of the book. And that statement hmm. really struck me. But the point there, I think, is that people in the community, and we usually call them local stakeholders, have a lot of knowledge and skills to contribute in DRR. And without them or their participation, uh, I think our DRR will never be optimal. But, but, but my personal take is that you know, people have the right to be, part of the, to be a part of whatever it is that we are doing in disaster research in DRR. We have a right to life and considering the threats that we face from all kinds of hazards, one of the ways to, I don't know, I know, uphold that right in life is to suffice for everyone's right to participate in such a Thank you for sharing this. You know, I never, I never knew your personal story, so that that is just so nice. You know, it's it's nice to, <laughs> to learn, I guess, to learn yes. about the person. So, thank thank you for bringing this to us. Um, I suppose you know, between the three of us, but also I'm sure uh, for our audience, we kind of assume right now that when we talk about community, we never imply homogeneity. We, I think, we all acknowledge mm. that community. Mm. Um, consists of many different individuals and this is why when we talk about power relationship uh, we're not just talking about kind of insiders and outsiders but we also talk about power within the community right between and among the different individuals and so when we talk about disaster risk reduction research and practice in the communities this navigation of power becomes a very important question so you know how what do you do to navigate the power and to bring the hidden voices to the forefront? What are your experiences with that? Well, I, I totally agree with you, Ksenia. You know, when we talked about community, we must, we must not forget that they refer to many people. Uh, you know, you have there the local authorities, the children, the parents, teachers, workers, farmers, well, uh, fishermen, businessmen, you have the poor people, LGBTQ IA+, male, female, ethnic minorities. Uh, recently, we engaged with uh, prisoners. You know, that's Jason's favorite uh, group of people, I guess, in the last uh, two years. People with disability and many other people. Now, they are the community. And uh, each person or I say group of people, each family or social group has um, personal or maybe group interest to protect. Uh, it's either for their livelihood or any economic and political interest. Mm. And they, I think there are significant aspects of power relationship in the community. But in my experience, one way to navigate this power relationship is to actually uh, live in the community. And what, what I realized is that to understand those interests, to, to understand people, 
it's not enough to just meet or encounter them like in one or two day workshop or seminars that uh, mm. or several interviews in the community for about a week for our research or you know to to complete the uh, that aspect of uh, that methodology in the paper I, I believe it takes more than more time than that when I did my book I was lucky enough to have the chance I live in the community for about a year or almost uh, or maybe maybe almost two years now to partially understand the people in the community where I work. And that partial understanding helped me a lot to, to, you know, some, to answer some questions. In fact, many questions, many of my research questions uh, that I think would not be properly answered without that, uh, that, that groundwork. And, uh, and I think it's, that's really important. And it's really, uh, uh, when I, when it's, not really a disappointment, but a kind of uh, discouraged to read uh, uh, papers or research publications that only involve one or two weeks or one month of research about life in the community, how yeah. people's, you know, people's capacities, people's vulnerabilities. Because you know, this my personal experience tell me, you know, tells me that it takes more time than that. You know, it's. Uh, uh, but yeah, I think that's one way to, to navigate the power relationship, you know, mm. spend more time in the community, as much time as uh, you can, you, you know, you can, you can spend in the community. And, you know, that kind of leads to my second question, I guess, about the, our engagement with community as researchers, you know, practitioners. And that is the question of ethical dilemmas you know i kind of i think about this quite often in that very often what may seem as a vulnerability for us or a root cause of vulnerability right is kind of ingrained in inequality yeah. but then who am i to come to the community and point those inequalities out right so how do we how do we deal with cultural boundaries how do we navigate these ethical dilemmas which i think we actually have to face quite a lot at disaster studies uh yeah you're right there's always uh there's always that ethical dilemma where uh at least in my experience uh, doing community works for, for about 12 13 years now uh there's always that dilemma where empowerment of some people could also mean uh, disempowerment for others I encountered that several times, you know, talking to one group means uh, shutting the doors for the other groups. And for outsiders like us, uh, I think the only way, a practical way to, to somehow resolve that, uh, the result that is, you know, to, to work with people who are already on the ground, you know, work with NGOs, uh, people's organizations, uh, cooperatives. And I'm not saying that we will solve that ethical dilemma because the, these groups are usually not 100% neutral <laughs> or a political mm, group. Mm. But, uh, but in doing that, we do not create you know, more problems. Uh, we become more careful. We become uh, sensitive, uh, which we should always be. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, I, I think one way to really hear those, uh, uh, those people who we usually label as marginalized groups or or vulnerable groups is, uh, you know, just through, uh, is through, uh, community-based approaches, you know, to really engage people, uh, at least with the help of these, uh, local, uh, groups or locally established groups. 
uh, to engage people uh, in the community uh, discussions. You know, just first to be there, you know, to be present, to have mm. that opportunity to be to be recognized, to speak. And definitely, it's not the one-time activity. It takes a lot of time for those uh, people to be heard, and not all of them would continue to be heard. <laughs> you know, after that activity, they uh, they they remain that way. Uh, but I know a lot of people who took the chance, and later I'm not sure, but maybe through self-realization, voice out their concerns and continue to be that way. Uh, yeah. At least in, in in several communities where I work, and I had the chance to go back and talk to them again. I, I see, uh, I saw, or I I saw that uh, the changes in, in the lives of some people, not many people, but at least in the lives of those uh, people that I met. I want to build on that and and focus in on this um, something that I think is important to your work and your perspective on research, which is putting the community at the center. And um, something that you've written about um, quite a bit is capacities and local knowledges. Mm. And so I just wanted to get your thoughts on how we can truly reflect these things in the way that we do research. And also, what do communities gain by participating in research? Because mm. so often when disaster research is done, it's, it does not actually benefit communities, but only benefits the researcher's career progression, right? <laughs> I, I totally agree, uh, Jason. Uh, but anyway, on the capacities, uh, you know, like all other concepts, concept it, it's really uh, multidimensional. And uh, we, we all know in disaster research, we have a lot of definitions. And then you know, to capture that many phases, many dimensions and capacities. Uh, but we say that there's really no person who has zero capacities. And I agree mm. with that. Uh, but, you know, I met a lot of people in the community also who have a lot of resources and a lot of capacities to share and to contribute in disaster mm. risk reduction. Uh, usually, I, I, I learned those people. I learned with, about those people you know, through informal conversations, you know, talking uh, uh, in daily life, meeting in daily life. Right. Uh, but they are not involved. So, in that sense, uh, that zero participation, I think, trans- translates to untapped capacities for disaster risk reduction. So, uh, so how do we how do we capture them? So, I think the way really to capture them is, uh, as I said a while ago is to, to make them part of the activities, you know, to be present in those uh, community-based uh, discussions. Uh, although not all of the people have the, the, the chance to participate in those activities, at least in my experience, when we organize those uh, community-based disaster risk reduction uh, activities, uh, usually we have a three-day program. And in those three days, we involve uh, now, for purposes of easier management, we involve uh, 30 to 40 people. And that's already a lot, you know. Mm. And uh, who are these people that we involve? These are people who are selected by our local partners. Uh, and we trust those local partners that they would really uh, <coughs> involve or invite those uh, people who uh, at the start we, uh, we, we, we thought should be included or are not usually heard. And now in this activity, in those activities, we want them to be, to, to be heard. So, uh, yeah, that's how I think uh, 
these capacities should be captured. Well, there are, of course, other things that can be done later, you know, make uh, them part of the community-based DRR team or, or, or uh, group. You know, usually they have that those in the communities, uh, but that comes later, you know. Now, for researchers, um, yeah, I, I definitely, I, I totally agree with you that, you know, there's some, there are uh, many cases uh, where we care about our own career progressions and not really about, uh, you know, the benefit that uh, our uh, programs bring to the community. Uh, but I think some practical ways for us to, to, to make our research activities, our programs, or academic research more useful is one to translate it to local language and at least send a copy of that research paper uh, to the uh, to the village chief or to the local people who we met uh, during our research. Uh, at least have that you know have that uh, have that uh, uh, spend some time to do that and uh, if possible continue communications. Uh, I had the chance to do that because, you know, I'm in the Philippines and most of my research activities are in the Philippines. So when I do research in the, in the, in the Philippines in the past five years, there is, I think, a 90% chance that in those communities, I would have friends via Facebook or social media. Mm. And we continue to, uh, you know, continue to communicate uh, through those social media. Um, so, but, so those are just, you know, ways to, uh, to, uh, to make uh, your research uh, more useful for for the communities where you work, but you can always go beyond it. You know, a, a fallacy brief uh, in local language is always useful, uh, or will become useful later. Uh, also, I think it's very important, and I must admit that there's only one time that I did it, is working with local researchers who will continue the work later or mm. after we leave mm. the community. Um, in, well, at least in many in many of the research activities that I did, uh, there was only one. Only, I only had one chance to do that. But I think that's what I'm going to do in the you know the next time I do my research activities. Always try to have that local partner, local researcher, to work with you, hoping that he or she will continue to work. I just wanted to pick up on something, Jake, um, that you said about how, you know, most researchers are like have good intentions towards the community or want the community to have benefits. And I think that's true. Um, but there, there seems to me that there's a distinction between like, like wanting, having good intentions and actually, um, having clear, measurable, objectives you know for mm -hmm. how, the, how the community will benefit and maybe mm -hmm. that's where disaster research is sometimes falling down because because we end up with good intentions for community impact but we don't set up a way to measure it and actually follow through whereas for like our own career progression we we usually have very clear metrics that the university maybe designs where they yeah. can me measure whether we were successful in doing our research, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. 
Very true. I, I think uh, I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and, and this, you know, this happened many times to me and I think to many of my colleagues that, you know, when we started doing that academic research, uh, we usually, we, we have the most ideal definition of what participation, you know, of, that, of those principles of, uh, uh, sometimes we call them service learning, you know, mm. the service, uh, learning from the community while providing services to them. And then during the implementation of the research, we encounter challenges and, you know, our personal objectives are compromised mm. and that we might miss the deadline or we might disappoint the, you know, the, the source of the fund for the research. Right. Mm. So what we, what usually happens is, and it's, I think it's, it happened to me, uh, I must admit several times that, or maybe to some other researchers that we, uh, the tendency is for us to redefine the, uh, well, the participation and, uh, mm. you know, try to uh, rationalize our real objectives, thinking, thinking that there is still a next time and that this is just a pilot study and we can have, you know, more luck later, more time, yeah. more opportunity to actually do what we want to do. But, you know, at least based on experience, there's really no next time, you know. <laughs> Project duration yeah. or research duration is just, what, two, three years? And uh, we move on to the next research. Mm. Well, I hope we are learning, but it's almost 40 years now when uh, Robert Chambers first published his book, Putting the Last First, and we are still saying that we are learning. Mm. Well, speaking of yeah. Robert Chambers, uh, uh, you know, when uh, <laughs> in those moments when people's participation is compromised because we need to deliver, uh, you know, f- finish the research on time, hmm. uh, write those progress reports. I always feel like Robert Chambers or, or JC, JC is my advisor, so behind mm-hmm. me and telling or shouting at me, did you really read <laughs> my book? <laughs> so, you know, uh, yeah. you know I, I guess uh, we must always be reminded by, by Robert Chambers if you, or, or, or many of our colleagues in the development work, that if you want participation, you know, uh, you want, uh, you know, the, well, participation of the people, genuine community-based disaster research work that empower people. It must be included in the design. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. you must not, well, it's hard to say this, you must not compromise, but in the end, you know, at least in my experience, I always compromise. <laughs> but, you know, uh, it, but yeah, it must be included in the design. Otherwise, yeah. do not expect anything that is that happen that it happens automatically because you know it does not. So right. um, yeah. yeah, I think that's uh, that's how I see it. You know. Yeah. Mm. So you know, you now put that image of Robert Chambers in my head, and I think <laughs> I will, it will never leave me. I will forever see <laughs> Robert Chambers oh, yes. as and when I engage with the community. This is great. Um, and, you know, so talking of um, participation and participatory methods. So, you know, for me, Jake, you are the participatory mapping person. Anytime somebody asks me about mapping, I'm like, well, here's Jake, you know, <laughs> he, he knows all about it. He'll tell you all about it. So and I, I really admire what you do with participatory mapping in the communities, as you know. Mm. So, but what I think is quite problematic is that all of a sudden, you know, like as of, 
last few years, everybody has just decided to do participatory approach, right? And just use participatory yeah. methods, including participatory ma uh, mapping. Whereas I think that it's actually quite a difficult tool, right, to use it properly. Um, and I feel that many researchers and even some NGOs, they kind of abuse this tool. So how should we use it properly? What is at the heart of participatory mapping? Uh, well, yes, many. Um, you know, these this, uh, participatory mapping tools, not just our well, participatory tools in general, but most especially participatory mapping, I think they are very... They became they become very popular recently because you know it's they are they are very visual, very engaging. Mm. Uh, at least for the participant, you know what I told about what I said about being present, being part of the activity. I think one way to uh, to to actually do that, or one uh, one to, a tool that uh, uh, really embodies that, is uh, participatory mapping. You know, you really do something and there's an output that stays in the community. So you have that, mm. say, you know, what we usually do, the participatory map, the participatory 3D map uh, that stays in the community. And that reminds people also of, their, of their participation. Uh, that's why I think it's, it's, it's very popular. Uh, it's very easy to do. Well, not really easy to do, but, you know, uh, uh, once you started doing this in the community, people... Uh, people usually like it, uh, but you're right. Uh, there are many, uh, there are many abuses to uh, to, uh, to using this tool. And I must admit, uh, there's there's one or two projects where uh, I think uh, in one or two two research projects that I did, where quantity is uh, you know the measure of success. Mm -hmm. How many maps have we right. produced? <laughs> well, again, right. we go back to that. Uh, <laughs> the issue that we encounter working with donor organizations because you know uh, most of the time it goes down it boils down to uh, uh, were you able to check you know uh, to tick that uh, deliverable yes or no numbers are usually the basis of those uh, deliverables and that's the measure of success and in the course of doing the project we lost uh, track of what is uh, what is really important mm. so yeah, it, 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 it happens, you know. Uh, but I think what's important here is uh, really to reflect uh, to those, uh, uh, to those not really mistakes, but, you know, shortcomings and uh, hoping that uh, it won't happen again later. Uh, and I think uh, at least in several of our projects, uh, we're able to do, or research project at least, we're able to do that uh, post uh, uh, project reflections and uh, in fact in one of our research projects uh, we uh, we usually uh, do the monitoring and evaluation of the outcomes of those projects uh, so i'm not just talking about academic projects but usually what we do mm. is a mix of of, of uh, academic research where we publish or write something about the project that we did with the community uh, i think that's always been the setup that of my research or community works that, I, that I've been doing the last 10 years uh, is, uh, so in one of the, in one of the, I think one of the successes that we did, that we did in one of the projects that we had is to, you know, allot some funding 
um, to do the monitoring and evaluation of those projects beyond the project duration, which is usually not funded by mm. by donor organizations. So uh, you know, to, to think about uh, to to look at how this uh, how these participatory mapping tools benefit the community beyond the duration of the of the project or the academic research mm-hmm. and uh, in, in many in, in, in many ways in many instances we had that uh, we had those reflections and shared with the NGOs but you know beyond that uh, we really don't know what happened after it, what happened you know um, but uh, with we hope that there will be some changes on how they do uh, this participatory mapping uh, or participatory tools in the community, uh, learning from those reflections that we had after the project or even beyond the project duration. So I think that's the limitations for us academic researchers uh, working with NGOs. But I, I believe that NGOs, you know, in times in uh, uh, if if we do this uh, regularly, if we do this as part of uh, of, uh, of the design of our programs of our research uh, i think it will uh, you know it will have positive impacts later hmm. okay jake this has been fascinating and we're just so glad you've been able to join us and and again bring attention back to this really important issue for disaster research generally about putting the community at the center of our thinking and our processes and our methodologies um, in order to ensure that the benefits of our research are actually, you know, targeted towards the people who, who, who are um, central to the project, right? Um, yeah. and which, which is the community, which is, is something that we don't always do very well, but I hope we're moving in the right direction. So thank you, Jake, for, for joining us again this week. Uh, thank you, uh, Jason and uh, Ksenia. It's an honor. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. I will hope you'll be back again in the future season. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Ksenia, Jason, and me, Jake Kadag on Disasters, the Constructed Podcast.